Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to the song Antietam off of the CD titled Color Factory, produced in two th- or released in 2017 by Michael Mike Kelly. He's uh, from the Annapolis, Maryland area, does a lot of shows in Frederick, Maryland, and the surrounding area, as well as the Eastern Shore, and he's on the telephone with me right now. Michael, how are you, sir? Doing well, Todd. Thank you. Well, it's so much fun for me to have you on the show. Thank you for agreeing to do it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. One of the reasons I led off with Antietam from the Color Factory CD is I've always been impressed by several things about you. One is you 
you don't do it exclusively, but you do write songs about historical events or something that has to do with uh, something that happened at some point in our historical past. That is one song. The other thing that has always impressed me um, is you are a true student of the instrument that you're playing. And when I say that, I've watched you progress, and I guess we've known each other for, gosh, you know, 12 years, maybe even a little bit more than that. And you seem to really study the guitar, and I know you're playing fiddle and a few other things as well, and then uh, harmonica, but you seem to really study it and focus on getting better at it. Am I accurate in that? I try. <laughs> <laughs> well, you seem I to... Sometimes, I sometimes um, think I'll never get where I want to get to, but I think that's probably common most, among most guitar players. Um, it's funny that you bring that up because I've been studying with Grant Cordy um, of David Grisman's quintet fame and uh, Mr. Sun, just an incredible guitar player. And I met him in uh, Ithaca, New York, at a workshop up there. And around March, about the time all this happened, he went online saying he was going to teach. So I've been every few weeks um, sitting down with him over Skype for an hour. And it's just been um, amazing. Uh, his approach to the guitar is much more intellectual than mine has been. He knows in his mind where he wants to go. And that's something I've always wanted to do. And I've always aspired to, and just really haven't sat down and worked through all the intricacies of that. So it, it's been a, even though I've been playing guitar for a long time, sometimes in those lessons, I feel like I'm just starting all over from scratch. It's kind of humbling, but it's also very much, uh, it's a lot of fun. Now, does he, in the, in the beginning lessons, ask you how well you know the fretboard as far as different notes and things like that, or is it something else? Maybe in passing, but it's more applied um, right away. You start into exercises with intervals, which you realize as you're doing them is making you more aware of the fretboard. Now, does he start off by saying, play something for me? He wants to listen and see how you, how you play? Not really, but we had, I had played in his class uh, in Ithaca. So I, I think he kind of knew what level I was. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of moved, moved right from that assumption, I suppose. Now, how long is an online lesson like that? Is it an hour, half an hour, 45 minutes? With Grant, you have your choice of a half hour or an hour. And um, I've been doing an hour. It just seems like you... Don't get everything. All you, everything you want to work on in a half hour is very difficult, and an hour flies by. So it's it's a, a little bit more appropriate time for me. Now, are they once a week or once a month, or is it really just when the your schedules align? Mostly schedules, but it's been pretty regular at about two weeks. Now, does he give you homework basically at the end of a show or at the end of a class yeah almost every class is opening a view into some aspect of guitar playing and i'll work on that and then the next time we meet 
I'll show them what I've progressed at and, you know, point out if I have any questions or anything. And we'll kind of, it's funny because he'll always say, I can't remember what we were working on. I don't know if that's true or not. That's, but that's kind of a prompt for, did you work on what we did last time? And I'll play something for him and then we'll kind of move on from there. It's very, a very loose format, but at the same time, I enjoy it quite a bit. Now, would, now you said you started taking the online lessons with him in March? Yeah, it's like March or April time frame, if I remember right. Now, to give us an idea of how well they're working, basically... Would you say that it it has improved your playing by 5%, 10%, 50%, or just smoothed out some wrinkles? I think it's hard to quantify. I think what it's done and what, what the most important aspect of it is to me is I play a lot of long shows and as a solo. And in those shows, um, on a song, I'll take the guitar break you know, mm -hmm. um, while playing rhythm. And you, I've gotten into a place where I just seem to be playing these really scalar things, very similar things in all the songs. And what working with Grant has done is it's opened up my approach to how I can put together those solos and <clears throat> have more variety to them. Um, using the intervals over chord shapes rather than just playing a scale over the whole thing, little things like that. I don't know if I could quantify it as a percentage, but I, I would like to think that the quality of my playing is improving. Well, you have always combined playing chords and strumming with what I call um, running lines or short lines of, of notes uh, and you're very good at it. It's one thing that I, I have tried and tried, and I cannot do it. So anyone I see and hear who can do that, I, I'm immediately, I give them a lot of respect. And you, you seem to have always used that. Was that something you worked on because you had heard other people do it, or is it something that that's just the way you play? For a long time, I was just a flat-out strummer, and the only thing that I was really concerned about was my rhythm. And... <clears throat> And then, and even in doing that, it was more of like playing drums. It, I wasn't as concerned about melody. I let the vocal part carry the melody. And then um, at some point, uh, I just decided that I wanted to incorporate more melody into the guitar playing. And I think it was, it was a combination of hearing people play like that and wanting to know how they did it. But I reached out to a, a famous melodic guitar player, Russ Berenberg, who's in Nashville, and he really got me going on that path and showed me flat picking. I had never really known how to flat pick before, and we, we kind of uh, evolved from there into, he realized I was playing solo a lot. So, you know, I started by learning fiddle tunes to get those under my fingers, and then we started you know, gradually working on how to incorporate a solo or as you called it, a running line into a song I was playing. And it's evolved from that. I'm, I have a, I'm recording right now that um, we're in the final stages of uh, a new CD and uh, I've got two instrumentals on that. So I'm 
kind of growing more into writing tunes as well as songs. It's been a lot of fun. Well, I look forward to, to hearing that. Do you have a, a date where you're hoping to release that? No, we don't have a specified date yet. I can tell you where we're at. Um, it's been a little bit crazy since we started recording this right before the pandemic. And the uh, the musicians have been doing the tracks in their home studios. And it takes a little bit longer. And, and it's, it's there's no rush on it. So I've been giving them all the time they want. But it's I've been real fortunate to have an association with Mark Schatz and he's playing bass again and he's his part is done and sounds fantastic. And then uh, Danny <clears throat> nicely who played on my the CD that you played uh, and Tatum from Color Factory also played on it. And both of those guys are just such amazing musicians. It blows me away. But I've laid down rhythm tracks and vocals. They put their parts in. We also had Robbie Benzig, who's a really fine young banjo player, a bluegrass picker. Um, he he knows Tom Minty, who uh, is the engineer on this record. He used to work with them, and he's just really come up um, learning from good people, and he's turned into an incredible musician. So he laid down some a couple of banjo tracks, and right now, uh, Ricky Simpkins. Uh, the great fiddle player from uh, Emmy Lou Harris and Tony Rice fame. Uh, he's putting tracks, fiddle tracks down and uh, backup harmonies. So I'm real excited to hear what what he has when he's done. And at that point, I have one more song to add, which will just be me on Clawhammer banjo. And then uh, we have Phil Wiggins hopefully uh, playing harmonic on another song I've written. Well, I do want to get close. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it sounds like it's going to be really good, too. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the to a finished product. Well, I look forward to asking you some quite more questions regarding the recording process and, you know, the players that you've invited on to the CD. But I have a quite quick question. You were taking the uh, lessons from was his name Russ out of Nashville? Russ Berenberg, yeah. Now, when he was teaching you kind of the, the, the bluegrass uh, flat picking, did it change the type of pick you were using when, from when you were strumming until, did he make any suggestions, change it to a thicker or a thinner or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd always use about a medium pick, which is probably, I think the heaviest pick I ever used back in those days was like a .88. And then uh, once you once I started flat picking, Russ recommended a bigger pick, and I went to like a 1.1, which is about what I use now. For a while, I even went up to 1.4, but I've been using um, it's a it's made by say uh, Kenny Smith model pick. It's not quite the triangular shape that I used to use. It's got three rounded corners, and it's a little smaller was hard to get used to at first and it's about a 1.1 but it has for my guitar at least it has great tone both through flat picking solos fiddle tunes and just uh rhythm just strumming rhythm well the the brand cut out when you mentioned the name it just happened to drop for like a split second we got the kenny smith part but what brand pick is that oh i'm sorry uh blue chip okay blue chip yeah they're in uh, knoxville tennessee 
the um, it's been interesting because I have, well, I've done uh, reviews for the the Fame Soundpost newsletter on the gear, and two or three times I've done picks, and I keep not a thin, but like a a, a point six or sixty, all the way up to some really thick ones that, that don't even have a, I don't even know what they are, but they don't bend at all. And what is interesting to me, and the reason I asked that question was playing the same guitar you can get, if you've got four different thicknesses and materials of pick, you can get four completely different sounds from the same guitar playing the same thing. It's amazing. I never had realized that until I uh, was playing mandolin and uh, a friend of mine, Larry Byrne, drew a bunch of, we were trying to get a different tone for a song we we were working on and he threw down like a dozen picks on the table in front of me and said, just play a little bit with each one of those. And I was astounded at this difference in sound. I agree with you. Well, the uh, let's go back to the um, CD and the recording. Do you record your parts at your house or do you go to the recording studio to do your parts and then everyone else does them and emails them? Yeah, I went to the studio. It actually, we started the recording, um, I believe it was February, and everything was still open. I think after we did two sessions, um, that's when everything started sh- shutting down. And we left those sit. Um, the, the rhythm tracks, for the most part, were good, but there were a couple of things I was still unhappy with. So after about three or four months, I went back in and we followed all the protocols and um, I redid a few tracks in the studio. But everyone else, Mark and Danny and Ricky, have done it in their home studio. I believe Robbie went into the into Tom's studio, uh, Patuxent Music, to um, to record his parts. Now, how did you f- find that recording studio? Because as we know, there's literally hundreds in this area, especially now because it's so easy to set one up with your computer and, and some interfaces and things like that. How did you go about choosing that particular studio? I was real lucky to find Tom um, through two sources. I was taking Clawhammer banjo lessons with Brad Kaladner, and he had an association, his Charm City Junction band with Tom Minty and Patuxent Music. And then also... Um, I had taken a class with Danny nicely at Common Ground on the Hill. And I talked to him um, about recording. And he, I said, who do, you, who do you like to work with? And the first person he mentioned was Tom Minty as well. Tom has done some amazing recording, um, all kinds of artists. He just has a kind of a, an, an amazing career. He started out... Um, I think just doing it because a couple of his friends wanted demo tapes and it kind of grew from there. He recently just won a, uh, uh, an achievement award from uh, the DC Bluegrass Union, um, which was very well-deserved and it was fun to uh, see him honored in that way. Now, where is his studio? Tom is in Rockville, Maryland. Okay. The reason I, I, I asked is when it, you said the name was Patuxent. I thought, oh, it's probably on the Eastern Shore. Yeah, a lot of people think that there's a story behind that. 
And doggone if I can remember what it is. I think it has something to do with the boat he used to own. Mm-hmm. So but how? No, it's in Rockville. Yeah. So how did you come up with the players? Did you run into them at uh, festivals, or was it you know word of mouth? How do you how do you go about putting together a studio band like that? Well, I got to know Danny a little bit at the uh, the workshop out in Westminster. That's a week long, and you see each other a lot. And we got to jam afterwards. Um, so I knew that I loved the way he played. There's nobody better on mandolin in this area than Danny Nicely, and he plays fiddle, guitar. Um, he was the Telluride Festival mandolin winner one year i mean he's just a phenomenal musician Uh, just getting to know him a little bit better um i I knew i wanted to ask him but i was also kind of afraid to ask him because i I didn't really consider myself quite the caliber player that he is and i figured it was kind of a what the heck kind of thing and he was all about it so that was how i got uh associated with danny We've done a couple of shows together and it's just a joy to play with them. Um, but uh, he was the person who said, we're in the studio and they said, do you have a bass player yet? And I said, no, not yet. I've been thinking about a couple of people. I said, we should call Mark Schatz. And I almost fell out of my chair because, you know, Mark Schatz, I mean, you're talking Tony Rice unit, Nickel Creek, pretty much every, it, it's funny. After I met Mark, I went through, one day, like 20 or 25 bluegrass CDs. And I think he was on like 18 of them or something. Wow. Just plays with all kinds of people. And he's a fantastic musician, but he lives in this area. He lives in Millersville, Maryland. So uh, they gave me his phone number and I was fortunate that he said yes. So, uh, and then Brad Cloudner, I was, I met, um, that was just a Appalachian bluegrass offered Clawhammer banjo classes and I was something I'd always been been interested in. I took lessons with them and went on to take some private lessons with them. So that was a, you know, that was the easy, hey, Brad, would you be interested in a recording? And I was, again, very fortunate that he did. But then uh, Danny and Tom both recommended Phil Wiggins. I had a blues tune and uh, that was, that was a memorable experience. Phil, just won the National Endowment uh, grant. He's a, just a, a an incredible artist. He played with Phil Wiggins for many, many years. I'd known of him. We had, a, as it turns out, we had a friend in, in common when I was a kid. A grave digger at a church that my mom worked at was John Jackson. And that church would have a Labor Day picnic. And I'd go out. Um, I had like a group of friends that lived out in that area in Fairfax Station, Virginia. And I'd see him playing guitar and, you know, he'd try and teach me something. I was too ignorant at the time to really take advantage of that. But John Jackson is a, you know, was a world renowned blues musician, uh, Piedmont style. And uh, I got to talking to Phil and John and Phil were pretty close. So right away we hit it off. But it was a memorable day meeting him. Um, Phil took the subway into Rockville the metro into Rockville, and I picked him up. And I, I hadn't met him before, but I see look, coming across the parking lot, 
this really well-dressed man with a fedora on and the uh, the cashmere overcoat and a briefcase. And it just looked like I had spent some time in Chicago. It just was such an archetypical bluegrass, or I'm sorry, blues musician look, you know. I was like, that's Phil. And uh, <laughs> I opened the door for him and I had, uh, oh man, why can't I think of his name? One of the great Chicago blues harmonica players on, uh, uh, it'll come to me later, but he's, I had that CD playing and he sat down in the car without saying a word to me, didn't even look at me. And then just boom, like listened for like three seconds and said the name of the harmonica player. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that was a fun day. So that's kind of a heady experience to have people of such renown agree to play on, on, on one CD, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I don't try and it's not something, um, how is it, how do I want to put this? I, I think you could take that as like a kind of an ego type thing, but I realized they're musicians. They're trying to make some money. I'm a singer songwriter and it's a good opportunity for both of us. So I don't consider myself because we have this association that I'm that good. I'm just incredibly grateful that I had a chance to play with them and I'm honored that they uh, agreed to play, you know, with my recording. So it's been a, a, a lot of fun. The CD show, the CD release parties playing with them were, were so much fun. I think that's half the reason I did another recording was to get to do that again. Now, when you, now, this is for Color Factory. You're saying you had the, the CD release, right? Yes. Now, where do they, you, you mentioned the one fellow who lives in Millersville. Where do the other ones live? Uh, Mark Schatz is in Maryland. Danny's in Virginia in the Leesburg area. Uh, Ricky has a farm in Southern Maryland. I think Phil's in Tacoma Park these days. And... Uh, I think Robbie was from the Rockville area, and Brad Cladner, of course, was from Baltimore. So it wasn't that difficult to get them in one place for that release party? No, it's amazing. That's one of the beautiful things about this region. Um, there are just a lot of really talented musicians in the area. I think there's certain hubs where that's true, like Seattle. Um, but there are places you can imagine that if you were a musician, it wouldn't be this easy. Well, you mentioned taking claw hammer uh, banjo lessons. When I first met you, you may have been playing other instruments, but I knew you primarily as a guitar player. Then you started showing up with a, a harmonica rack, and it seemed like you were in the process of learning how to play harmonica and play at the same, you know, add it to your repertoire. But I, I think I remember your, you took fiddle lessons, and then you mentioned your... Um, playing banjo. So what are the instruments you now play? I play um, a lot of string instruments. I've on, I've on and off played harmonica my whole life. Um, back to the days when I had, I think I was like 17 years old, 16 or 17, I had this Volkswagen Beetle I bought for 50 bucks. It didn't have a radio. And I was working nights in D.C. and I'd be driving home on Route 95 out of the city in the morning playing harmonica because that thing reverberated like a speaker. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But uh, 
I play guitar, of course, um, a little bit of mandolin, um, claw hammer banjo, and I've had really, um, I put down uh, the mandolin and the banjo for a little bit and really focused on fiddle the last couple of years. Unfortunately, um, I kind of overdid it and I've had to back off it for a few weeks now. I probably I may need surgery. I don't know. There's something wrong with between my neck and shoulder, but I'm going to get a shot in a couple of weeks and hopefully that will clear it up and I can get back into that. I think I was just, you know, cranking down too hard on the fiddle with my neck and chin and at a, the wrong angle and it kind of bit me. But I was playing like three and four hours, you know, and uh, I don't know, getting old is no fun, is it? <laughs> yeah, we could we could have a long conversation about that. Oh, yeah. but anyway, You're doing much better than I, I'm sure. But yeah, these little things are frustrating. They, they are. They are. Um, I had a friend one time. She was in, I think she had just turned 82. Very close friend. She, we met through work, basically, and they became fast friends. She, she looked at me one day, and, and I think I had, it was her birthday, and I, I said, happy birthday. And she goes, I'm 82. She says, how did I get here? She says, I was, <laughs> I was 50, like last year. How did it all happen? And that's, it does, it kind of sneaks up on us. But in a way, that's good. I look at it as... We must have been having fun because when we're having fun, we don't notice time going by. It's when we're That's not having point. fun is when it seems like it just drags and drags and drags. Yeah, that's good. So as I far as like, uh, I think Rod did a poem one time, Rod Dacey saying how he feels one way and then he looks in the mirror and goes, who is that person? Yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Now, now, speaking of timelines, things like that, when did you first realize or start playing or singing any any kind of music? Were you from a musical family, or was it something where you just kind of picked it up on your own at a very young age, and it just kind of went this way and then that way and eventually turned into something? My my dad was a great singer um, in, in the Irish tradition, not traditional Irish music, but show tunes and Oh Danny Boy and those kind of things. Um, and his friends would come over to the house. <clears throat> My dad was also uh, an incredible athlete, played uh, baseball in college, hurt his knee playing football, but st still ended up getting a tryout with San Francisco 49ers. He was a big guy. And it was funny because everybody would come over to sing and they all had that sort of um, competitive uh, approach to singing, they'd all try and hit the high note better than the person who sang before them, you know. So it was fun listening to them, but we just had show tunes and what they, my parents like to listen to, um, plays and things like that, playing. Uh, my dad played a little piano, but not much in the house. He was like one of those people who could sit down and pick out a tune, but he couldn't read a lick of music. My little brother can do that. But nobody really played a lot. Um, I think like a lot of people in my generation, it was sort of hearing the Beatles and then seeing like the first group of kids my age in school in the band and just falling head over heels in love with the idea that I could do that. Um, it kind of went on from there where I just had a lot of friends who were 
doing the same thing at the same time. We kind of all taught each other at the same time. Now, was your first instrument guitar? It was, yeah. And how did that, that, that just happen? Well, and it probably happened the same way it happened to me. The First, it was the hootenanny for me, you know, the folk music, but very quickly it was the Beatles hitting the American shores and nobody wanted a banjo player. I wish I'd kept the banjo and kept playing it, but I, I don't think I ever got past square one with it. So, Did you start on banjo? What's that? Did you Was banjo your first instrument? Well, what it was was there were three boys in the family. My older brother, I don't know, because we were enamored by the folk music thing. And Kingston Trio, three guys. So my older brother got a guitar. I got a, these are all very cheap instruments. But he played guitar. I got a banjo. We didn't know what my little brother was going to do. So we bought him a cheap electric bass. Never learned how to play it. I don't think he picked it up more than one time. And I learned a couple chords on the banjo. And then the Beatles hit. And nobody wanted a banjo player anymore. So my, oh, older, no. my older brother wasn't playing the guitar much. So I confiscated it. He eventually kept playing. <laughs> so is that how it kind of happened with you? Everybody wanted to pick up the guitar, so you did as well? Yeah, I think uh, hearing a couple of my friends play and thinking I can do that. And it's funny, that first guitar was a Sears Silvertone that you had to use a pair of pliers on the tuning pegs because the tension was side to, to tune it. I could never tune it. And I had a friend who lived in my neighborhood, Mike Cotter, who, uh, you know, had a great musical career. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years back. But he and John Carroll had a duo and they both played. We were in high school and they'd be late for class. Um, well, they went to a different high school than I, but they would be playing uh, at the Kennedy Center with backing up John Denver and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. But he came he would come over to my house and help me tune the guitar and I'd hold the guitar and he'd have a pair of flyers <laughs> on the tuning pegs and I'd just crank on that thing until we got put next to a piano, you know, for pitch. So how quickly did you replace the silver tone with a guitar that actually you could tune easier and pl- probably play better? Yeah, there was a music store in the neighborhood and they had like a beautiful guitar that caught my eye and it still was, you know, kind of a knockoff guitar, but it was better than what I had. I think I probably saved up half the money and I think my mom gave me the other half. And I got that and it was so beautiful. I remember bringing it home, just strumming open strings, like not even strumming a chord on it. Just amazed that I could play it easily and the sound you know, that I got from it. But I guess by the time I got uh, into high school, I saw everybody was playing Martins and uh, I've bought I think my first Martin was a D18 and and started, I did some wheeling and dealing. And then I had a, I had a double Ot 18. That was a beautiful guitar. And I traded it for a D35 12 string at some point. And I remember um, on Facebook coming back in touch with the guy I hadn't seen since those days, Joe Barden, who designed pickups for Danny Gatton. But we had gotten, we had fell out of touch. And uh, I hadn't talked to him, I don't know, 30 years or something. And the first question he asked me was, do you still have that double out 18? Not even hello. Do you still have that guitar? But unfortunately, I didn't. But I still have that D18. 
um, all this time. And I, I traveled across the country with it. I hitchhiked uh, out to California and back and up into Canada with that guitar. And then uh, it got, you know, just the, the stress of the temperature changes and passage of time tore up the top and the bridge. And I took it in. After, I set it in the corner, didn't play it for years and years, and decided not that long ago that I wanted to, um, you know, have it fixed back up. And Appalachian Bluegrass did that for me. And uh, I still have it, still play it. As a matter of fact, I was at, uh, what is it? Um, not International House of Music, Institute of Musical Traditions in Tacoma Park. They were doing some work on the intonation for me. And the guitar case is the one that I hitchhiked with the cross country and it's beat up really bad. And the owner said to me, you know, you need a new guitar case. And I said, you really, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. I do, but this, I told him the story of, you know, traveling around the country with it. And he said, I said, I just can't let it go. And he said, wait here a minute. And he went in the back room and came out with this huge roll of duct tape and said, on the house. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I still have that same guitar case with a bunch of duct tape on it. Is it one of the old, what we call the chipboard cases? Uh, it's just like the standard hard shell case. Oh, it is, yeah. Not the, not the plastic one that with the Martin name on it. I think, actually, that case was from a Gibson I used to have that the D18 fit into. And I didn't like walking around with the, the Martin showing on it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a little more uh, nondescript. So what are the guitars you have owned that you let go, you wish you never had let go? Not that many. I, I tend to keep things. I think that double out 18 is the one. Um, the D35 12 string was a beautiful guitar to play, but the 12 string really wasn't happening for me. I just didn't really incorporate that into my stuff that much. So that wasn't too hard to let go. And then there were a couple of guitars I had that I traded for that I felt like I did better in the trade. So that didn't feel too bad. But most of the guitars I've had, I still have. <laughs> now, what's your collection like? I mean, how many do you have? What are they? Oh, that's a good question. Um, not that many. I, I know people have a lot more, but I have my Martin D18. I have a Gibson J35 that I really love. I think that's the first guitar I had when, when we met. Mm -hmm. um, I bought not too too many years back. Um, it's a 1950 uh, Gibson L2 that I really love for the tone that it has. I've used that on this last recording for a couple of tunes. And then I have um, the guitar I play all the time. It's a Fletcher Brock. Um, oh, you have, a Fletcher, you have a Fletcher Brock. Yeah, I was. Do you know Fletcher Brock? Well, it's funny. I I don't know him, but I, in my idle time, if I'm at work, as you know, I'm a realtor, and we sit what we call floor duty or desk duty, which is four hours, and you have to be there because the receptionist is not licensed and she cannot give out detailed information on listings. So if someone calls in, she or someone walks in the door, she'll refer them over to whoever the agent on duty is. Well, some days nobody comes in, nobody calls, and you're just sitting there and you get whatever paperwork you need done and you've still got three hours to go. So nice. what I do is I'll go on eBay or Reverb, just see what's for sale. Unfortunately, I buy way too many of them. But <laughs> recently, and I'm pretty sure it was on Reverb, 
It was a Brock guitar, and I love Sinker Redwood tops. And this small jumbo cutaway, just the photo just drew me in. The dark lines on it are very dark, and it's made by Fletcher Brock. And I didn't know really anything about him. I may have heard the name, so I went and looked at the website because I was curious, is he a good builder? So it's interesting that you have a Brock guitar. Yeah, I love it. Um, first time I had seen one of his guitars, Eli West from Cahill and West played one for a couple of years. And I always thought he got great sound. I know that's not a good judge of the guitar because a great player could get great sound out of a piece of cardboard practically, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I uh, had been in touch with Fletcher Brock and I couldn't afford one of his guitars and it would take two years for him to build it because he has such a, a cue. But um, he told me about a guitar that unfortunately the owner had passed away and his sister wanted to uh, get it to somebody who's going to play it. So I got a great deal on it and I've been in love with it ever since. I remember taking it out of the case and accidentally hitting a string and it just rang for like five minutes. I was like, Oh my God, it was incredible. Now what uh, body shape is it? It's based on the old Gibson Roy Smek. Um, oh. Closest it is, is probably like a J 35 type shape. So it's got rounded shoulders, rounded shoulders. Yep. It's a, uh, it's a uh, Adirondack spruce top and then uh, aged mahogany, Honduran mahogany, ebony fingerboard. Now, is it 12 fret or, or 14 fret to the body? 12 fret, yeah. yeah. So, so it, that shoves the uh, saddle or the bridge down towards the wider part of the guitars, and that's one of the reasons it probably has that big sound and just carry, you know, sustains forever. Yeah, I don't, I'm playing more and more up the neck now. When I first started playing, I was all over the neck. And then Russ Berenberg actually, it was funny, he said, he gave me a song to learn without showing me how to play it, learn it by ear. And I learned it all up and down the neck. And then he said, that's great, but you can also do it this way. And he never left first position. Hmm. And that's, you know, that was my introduction to flat picking and cross picking. So I stopped going up the neck so much. So this guitar for me is perfect. I mean, third position is about all I'll ever get up to, and it works really well. And I really like the sound. So that's important to me. Now, how did, for a while you were miking your guitars, but but you also have guitars with pickups pickups in them. Do you have a pickup in most of your guitars now? And how do you choose at a live performance whether you use a mic or a pickup or both? Yeah, I do have pickups in all of them. I really prefer the sound to a mic. Um, I, with an, like one exception, the J45 sounds really good through the pickups, but the Martin... And the Fletcher Brock, um, I prefer them playing through a mic. And, uh, you know, I'll use like an SM51 a lot of times, and they sound great. I also got a SM, a short SM81 um, with the Phantom Power that sounds really good on that guitar. Now, where do you... That was, yeah. that was at Ricky Simpkins' suggestion. He said, he actually said Tony Rice used that quite a bit. It's kind of indestructible. It's not indestructible. You can't drop it because you'll break it. But it's um, something you can play indoor and outdoor without, you know, it's not like a recording studio mic. It's a little bit more robust. Now, where do you place the microphone for your live shows? 
on the guitar. Yeah. Every sound guy I've ever worked with points it at the fretboard, and I never get the sound I want when I do that. I move it down towards the sound hole. I'm probably um, a little bit below center of the sound hole and a little bit towards the bridge most often. Now, do you cheat it towards the treble strings or the bass strings or pretty much dead center? It has a ton of bass, so I keep it. It's more towards the treble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm with you. I like, probably because we're both solo players for the most part, I don't have a bass player or a drummer on stage with me very often. It's rare. Mm-hmm. So I need to fill that low so that's, I do like, if I'm going to mic the guitar, and I don't do it very, very often, but I move it closer to the sound hole, maybe cheat it to the bridge a little bit to pull, to pull up some of that low end, because I find in the recording studio, yes, under ideal conditions, on the fretboard probably does help, but I actually like two mics, one on the fretboard and one just below this, more towards the bridge, because then it picks up both. So that's interesting that you do that. Um, kudos to you. Yeah, I'm not saying it's, you know, I... To, it's to my ear what sounds good. Um, I'm not saying I know a great deal about that. I'm just a little bit selfish in that approach. A lot of times a sound guy will say, no, no, you have to have it here. And it, it, something he'll do will make it sound better. I don't have that magic ability for some reason. But when I set up, that's how I do it usually, and I like the sound. Now, what do you use for a vocal mic? SM58 almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, is that just a microphone you've had since you were younger, or you just particularly like the sound of that one over, say, the Beta 58 or, 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 or any of the other brands? Yeah, it's just uh, it's what I've you know, had for live shows. Mm-hmm. In the studio, um, it's usually like a Neumann, but you know, for live shows, the 58 is just a great mic. I know um, I've used the Beta 58 playing shows that you've done sound at, and that sounds really good. I haven't picked one up yet. Someday I have to do that. Well, they're, they're a little hotter. Um, I don't want to say brighter. That's not necessarily the case. Um, I guess they're a little bit more of a modern sound, but both microphones. I mean, I still have my SM58 from the 19, gosh, 1976 or 75. It, I think it was the first or second year they were they were produced. And I used that. I mean, thousands and thousands of shows. They're indestructible, yeah. They really are. I mean, at the Weinberg one time, we were getting, I was, because um, I, I MC for the John Denver Tribute Band, Boulder Canyon Band. And so they had me come out and just get a, a sound check on my, my voice because I introduced the band, then I sing a little spoof song. And I'm looking at the SM58, and the thing, there was no curve anywhere on that grill. It was flat here. <laughs> angled here because it'd been dropped so many times and it sounded phenomenal that's great so now when you go out and you play you've got your well pick up in the guitar but you've got your guitar mic you've got your vocal mic do you take more than one guitar or more more than one instrument yeah i usually take two instruments at least for a while i was taking three i was starting to play a little bit fiddle uh at the shows but right now it's guitar and claw hammer banjo. Now, speaking of claw hammer banjo, and I've, I guess about a year, year and a half ago, I started to, and I have never taken a lesson, but I, I looked at many of the online 
tutorials and the I never got proficient enough to say I can actually play it. From the time you started, how long has it take did it take you where you felt like you were actually playing it the way it's supposed to be played or the way you were happy with playing it? Um I took lessons with Brad Kladner. He really gets you on your feet in a hurry. But the hard thing for a guitar player coming to Clawhammer is uh, getting that vertical motion on strings with the guitar. For example, on your your thumb always wants to go down and across the strings, but on Clawhammer banjo, you're pulling up. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like learning how to do that mechanically. And that took a, probably six or eight months for me. I mean you know to completely break the bad habit um, i had with my thumb i was you know and that was only like 10 percent of the time or something but i feel pretty comfortable now i've been playing a little bit more claw hammer since i've had to back off the fiddle and uh i've been doing a workshop a songwriting workshop with kahalen morrison uh from kahalen and west and um western centuries but uh he's had me writing you know every week we'll have like kind of a a prompt or a challenge and we both write a song and compare notes but he'll recently he's had me writing on on banjo so that's been a fun experience now you play an open back banjo or do you have a resonator on yours i play an open back it's a it was made by kevin enoch um he's in beltsville maryland he's his banjos are played by a lot of people great instruments um and it's his uh, tradesman model. The now, how, the, how did you find out about him? Just by watching. Well, Brad Clowner played a Kevin Enoch. Okay. Um, he plays a Kevin Enoch Dobson. He has a couple of them. But I, I noticed once you get into that, um, uh, you know, listening to people who play Clawhammer, and you start hearing the really good players, it's amazing how many of them are playing a Kevin Enoch banjo. And I, you know, again, living in this area is a blessing because he's right in Beltsville. And I was, uh, I wasn't real happy with the, the one I had. It was, it's a great, it was a great instrument, but it had a kind of brighter sound than I wanted for solo shows. It was more of a jamming with a lot of other people kind of sound where it cut through. And uh, I was looking around and I'd almost settled on one uh, at Institute of Musical Traditions in, uh, Tacoma Park, but I decided I'll drive out to Kevin Enoch's just to compare before I, you know, put down the money. And I, he put one in my hands and it was like, that's it. You know, <laughs> I just fell in love with it right away. The way it was made, the way it felt was, you know, perfect. Now, did he have one that you could purchase right then and there or did he have to make it for you? I was really lucky because he actually had one sitting in the corner. Usually with a maker like Kevin, there's quite a wait. So now, so you, you have the claw hammer, you have fiddle as well, because mm-hmm. um, you mentioned you're going to have to lay off that for a while. What do you play for a mandolin? Um, my mandolin is a, uh, it's a Gallatin, um, it's a Weber mandolin. Mm-hmm. I know uh, I've been jamming um, out in Akakik, Maryland with some people, and uh they had a flat iron, a Gibson flat iron that sounded so good. Um, it was a really cool instrument. And uh, Weber 
was one of the principal uh, luthiers on the um, on that instrument. So that kind of was once I read that, I was kind of interested in the Weber. And then the the Gallatin, I just you know I kind of fool around on banjo, um, and that was that's their low end, um, band, uh, you know, kind of entry level instrument. But uh, I I'm, I love it. Sounds great. Now, moving forward, do you consider yourself primarily a guitar player, and the other instruments are just accents, or do you want to go in a different direction? Say, write more with the claw hammer. My my goal is to be a musician, and I think um, that's something inside you, and then you should be able to make that happen with whatever's in your hands, maybe a drum, maybe a string instrument, maybe a piano. I'm not saying I can do that, but that's my goal. Um, because I've spent the most time on guitar and I'm more familiar with it, that's what I play more frequently, but I still try and vary, um, you know, you want to vary your sound. I, I know going back to doing the long shows again, it's funny because I'll play, um, you know, some pretty complex fiddle tunes and stuff like that, or, you know, I'll be soloing and uh, playing some stuff that, you know, it's not just the melody. And uh, then I'll pull out the, the claw hammer banjo. And because I'm not, I haven't been playing it that long, I just really emphasize the melody. You know, it's nothing, no frills, no bells and whistles. It's just kind of, really hardcore melody and people go crazy over it and it makes it really made me realize um how, you know a lot of times you, what you're doing on an instrument is just going over the heads of the audience and i need to sit back a lot of times and just try and remember where that connection comes from and it's usually something that strikes a familiar chord with whoever is sitting in the audience and that's rarely something very complex, much more often something very simple. So it, it's great in that respect, too. Now, you mentioned that you play in some of the, the jams. When you first started going out, whether it's mandolin or banjo or guitar, <clears throat> was it somewhat nerve-wracking going into these uh, groups? <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, especially when that in a fast bluegrass jam, that it comes around to you and the guy who just played played it in front of you played it like Tony Rice himself, you know, and you're like plunking along. But it comes like everything, you know, the more you do it, the better you get. And I would imagine most of those players are accepting because they've all been in the beginner kind of stage. So the yeah. fact that you're you may not be in the beginning of playing with that particular uh, group of people may not be quite as swift on the uptake or, or maybe as polished. They're probably very accepting. Yeah, I think that's a real important part of you know, and the jams in this area for the most part you have that type of environment. Um, I've been in a couple of jams where you could tell it was like they kind of wanted to pull apart from the rest of the people. And I think most of the time when that happens, those people actually migrate to another room, mm -hmm. you know, and 
but for the it, you kind of pick where you feel comfortable. And I've always been uh, very fortunate in that I've been surrounded by people who are very welcoming and very forgiving when you did make those mistakes, which part of the reason for going there is to get out of your comfort zone and to make mistakes and try new things. So it's all part of, uh, you know, kind of a communal type feeling and uh, helps you grow. Well, I noticed from your website that you have a show this Saturday um, in St. Leonard, Mar- I assume that's Maryland. I don't know where yes. St. Leonard is. Is it Southern Maryland? Okay. Is it Perigo? Is that Perigo Vineyards and Winery? That's it. Yeah. And then on the 17th, because we're, we're, we're taping this for those folks listening on October the 7th, the show will actually air later in the week. The, um, so the, you, you may have actually missed the 10th because the show may not air until Sunday or Monday. But you then are on the 17th of, of October, you're at Elk Run Vineyards in, uh, in Mount Airy, where you, you play very consistently and have over the years. It's one of my favorite venues. Yeah, I love playing there. Fred is, is a great guy. I miss Carol a great deal. She was always so nice and welcoming. Yeah, that was very sad when she passed. It really was. It was a shock. Yeah, it was. No one expected that. Yeah, and then the following, or actually in November, you're uh, November the twentieth. You're going to be at Black Ankle in uh, Mount Airy, yes. which, which is not that far from Elk Run. That's right. Both of them out in that area, and uh, both great venues, great people, good time. Now, do you have a preference as to what type of venue you perform at? I don't. Um, I mean, there's venues, you know, of course you play when you're a musician you play where people want you to play and i i view it that way and i view it as an opportunity to get my music across to some people or you know share something with some people but there are definitely venues you wish you weren't at you know the ones with five tvs up and (laughs) you know yeah that is there's all kinds of things i played one place one time where they stuck me next to a with some kind of uh refrigerated unit you know where they kept uh sodas and stuff like that and that thing was so loud and it was flat it was like it made everything i i was singing sound off key oh no (laughs) you know there's like things like that but for the most part lately i've just been very fortunate the breweries and the wineries are a great place i love playing outside um the people are really nice and the environments are you know as you know they usually very well cared for um landscape kind of places and it's you know it's pretty it's a beautiful place to play at now what do you use for sound equipment um i use i think at your suggestion i talked to you at one point i've been lugging around a yamaha pa but uh i've been playing the bows quite a bit uh, the last couple years it's just so much easier to to get in and out with that but if I have a big enough show, I'll, I'll haul the Yamaha back out. Yeah. Now, I know that you played, there's a, a well, I assume it's still there, maybe not with the, the whole COVID situation, a um, coffee house in St. Michael's. I think it was St. Michael's. And I cannot for the life of me remember. Had an elevated stage, and they had two Bose L1 compacts on their stage. And the fellow who owned it um, was from New York. What the heck was it? Was it St. Michael's? I think it was St. Michael's. 
because we had been, uh, Carol and I had gone down to go to the Maritime Museum, and it was a chilly October, or I guess it was April day. And uh-huh. I happened to look at the schedule as to who was playing. I said, Carol, there's Mike. <laughs> and, and you had you had played there, and I thought, you know. I'm trying to remember the name of that place. It was Blue something, right? Yeah, and I just, Blue Oyster yeah, maybe? That no, guy, he yeah. had a studio. Um, he was a musician. He played in New York. Really nice guy, very talented musician. Yeah, um, I think, uh, I don't think I played through a Bose that night, though. I think he had a full PA set up with a monitor. And he may have. He may have. Now, do you get to play in the East? Well, do you get to play in today's world? That's a, a loaded question, but... Were you playing on the Eastern Shore quite a lot, or was that just kind of a, a, a once-in-a-while type of a thing? That's more of a, a once-in-a-while, yeah. There's some neat little towns down there. There are. Um, I played, I've been playing the Eastern Easton, uh, Farm Market for a few years now. That's always a lot of fun. And I used to play in Chestertown pretty regularly, but that was a few years back. Um, I haven't revisited that in a while. Uh <laughs> But yeah, right now I think Easton is probably, you know, about the only place I'm playing on the Eastern Shore. Because you're based out of the general um, Annapolis area, aren't you? Yes. So you're actually in a really cool spot to travel to the D.C., Virginia area, to the Frederick, to the Baltimore, or to the Eastern Shore. Yeah, that's great. Mm. So what's your... Yeah, go ahead. I used to play quite a bit up at the beach, up in Ocean City, and... uh, you know that that's only like a two-hour drive and we would do a bunch of shows up there like two a day for three days kind of thing um but now i tend you know i don't i don't try and get those shows quite as much these days a lot of those are aren't really geared to to bluegrass or to the kind of music i've been playing but the Leesburg area has been very good for me, and then uh, the Mount Airy area. And I'm starting to grow a little bit out towards Southern Maryland as well. Now, knowing that we're still stuck in the whole COVID situation where we don't know when we're going to be able to perform indoor, um, but let's say sometime this fall or at the first of the year, things open up and the, 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 the virus gets tired and goes away, or at least goes away to the point where we can get back to somewhat a normal lifestyle. What, what's your goal as far as um, moving forward? Well, just try and pick up more of the shows. Um, I had a lot of cancellations this year, so hopefully I can, a lot of them were rescheduled. I was very fortunate in that respect. Um, I know a lot of the places that we were able to play want us to come back and it would be more of a playing inside kind of thing rather than just, you know, outside in the summer weather. And then try to, um, you know, it's been a lot of fun the past few years playing with Justin Trawick's uh, nine songwriter series and stay involved with that. You know, that gives me uh, an opportunity to play before a listening audience inside. But just keep moving forward. I mean, I don't I think at this point in my career, I'm happy to just line up, you know, enough gigs to stay busy and uh, 
get my music out to people and meet new people and just try and keep that ball rolling. Now, do you enjoy playing at home as much as you enjoy playing out? When I play at home, I'm usually practicing, you know. Um, I remember when I wasn't playing out, I would sit at the kitchen table and basically play for my own pleasure. And it's funny because I, I, I practice a lot. I mean, a couple hours minimum every day. And most of the time, it's very concentrated working on certain things. So even though I get a great deal of pleasure from it, um, I think it's it's always a little bit more fun to be out in front of people and you get a chance to try all the things that you've been working on in practice and see how they, they go over. Well, when we finish our uh, chat here, the um, I will end the show with a song from your Cross the River Home, which was your first CD, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes. And its its title is Who Found Who. It's one of my favorites. Um, but tell people a little bit about the song and uh, who does background vocals. So I, I wrote that song and I thought uh, maybe I could get my wife, Allie, to sing on this. She has a beautiful voice and she sings around the house all the time. And we went into the studio um, after I recorded, you know, the rhythm and the vocal tracks. And she came in to sing her parts on the chorus. And the chorus is, I guess we'll never know, baby, who found who. And the very uh, end of it, I, you know, I saw the engineer was laughing. And I did uh, not let me listen to her live take. I guess maybe they had talked about it, but she sings on the last chorus. She turns that around and sings, baby, I found you, <laughs> which is funny because we do that in our live show and it always gets a laugh. You know, we kind of do it a little bit in the theatrical type way now, but, uh, but now we recorded it where she just sang on the chorus. But now when we do it live, we trade uh, a friend of mine uh, suggested that we, do it more in a true duet fashion and we tried that and it works much better well as i mentioned it's one of my favorite cuts of uh, both cds partly because i've seen you perform at the two of you live numerous times and it is always i love the smile on her face when she sings the song with you yeah me too yeah <laughs> well mike Michael, I, I i refer to you as michael most of the time i know that a lot of times when i see a schedule it says mike kelly but I appreciate you chatting with me. I've learned more about you, and hopefully people who've never met you or heard you will now go to your website and order some of your music. What is the website address? MichaelKellyTunes.com And the reason for that is there's two or three other Michael, Mike or Mike Kellys out there in the music world, I think, isn't Much it? Much more than two or three, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And how can they, they can download uh, Across the River Home on Amazon or iTunes from the website, but how would they get a copy of Color Factory? Either iTunes or Amazon. Um, I don't think CD Baby puts out hard copies anymore or contacting me directly, and I'd be happy to ship it. Okay. Well, Mike, thanks so much for, for chatting with me, and I hope you uh, I hope we get to see each other in person sometime in the near future. I don't know if I can make it out to those to Elk Run or not. I'll do my best, but I, um, it just depends on how busy real estate is that day is really what it comes down to. 
Well, I hope you're, I, I would love to see you, but at the same time, I hope you're busy and doing well. So. Well, thank you. And uh, hello. And I hope you're feeling better. I know you took a nasty bike accident. So I did. I, I, you know, I was so enamored by your bike accident about seven years ago or six years ago that I figured, you know, I might try that myself. <laughs> and not we, a good idea. No, it's not a good idea. And we'll have that discussion when we get the chance to, to chat in person. So okay. anyways, uh, continued good luck with you and uh, hello to Allie. And uh, hopefully I'll talk with you soon. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate you having me. All right, Michael. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Well, that was Michael Kelly from the general Annapolis area. A nice, nice guy. I love his sound. He's very unique in his sound. You know, so many artists try to pattern themselves after whatever is popular, say, on the radio, um, whether it's it's Top 40 or Sirius XM Radio, whatever it is. And uh, Michael just, he plays how he feels and sings how he feels and writes how he feels. And we mentioned the song, Who Found You, that um, his lovely wife, Allie, sings background on. So we will listen to that right now. Again, thanks so much for listening. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All the music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link with friends and family and coworkers. It's wispymopmusic.podbean.com. wispymopmusic.podbean.com. Or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And again, I want to thank Michael Kelly for joining me on the show today. Enjoy the rest of the song.
Love is like a big train Rolling down the tracks Once you're on, you're on There's no going back Chugging over mountain Rolling all the plains Make it to the river And do it all again So did you find me Or did I find you Seems like only yesterday I haven't lost some blues So did you find me Or did I find you I guess we'll never know Baby, who found you? I guess we'll never know 